you've got to spend a little time really qualifying the deal before you, you get deep. That's the best advice that I can give. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 82, and today's guest is Jenna Posner. Jenna has an amazing story. A seven-time All-American, having been a professional rugby player, a mom, a career that has seen her live on the provider and vendor side of digital commerce and marketing, and then a transition to the brand side, Jenna is now the Chief Digital Officer for Solo Brands, a business made up of multiple direct-to-consumer brands, including Solo Stove, Oro Kayak, Isle, and apparel brand Chubbies. She offers up some great insights into the digital landscape today and how she's navigated her career. She also speaks about the Retail AI Council, a new project that she's working on. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jenna Posner. Jenna has served as Chief Digital Officer for Solo Brand since July of 2023. Prior to joining Solo Brand, she spent four years as the VP of Digital and Chief Digital Officer at Snipes, a global sneaker and streetwear retailer. Following her USA rugby career, yes, seven years playing professional rugby, and we're going to talk about that, Jenna was unsurprisingly drawn to the fast-paced world of tech, and prior to her direct-to-consumer retail experience, Jenna accrued 15 years as a strategic thinker, innovator, and retail tech expert for early-stage businesses that exited to companies like Grubhub, Fiserv, and Bizarre Voice. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Well, uh, thank you. And uh, we're recording this on the very last day of August 2023. Where has the summer gone? Yeah, very, very fast. You know, with three kids, it's definitely a bit of a whirlwind. Um, not going to lie, I'm kind of happy to see it come to an end. Because <laughs> they are now all go back to school. Is that it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, it definitely has uh, has gone fast. So, you know, we uh, I'm going to jump around a bunch of different things. You've had such an interesting uh, career. Um, you know, generally we start the show, um, and maybe we'll we'll do that here, kind of getting the first story from the guest. You know, a little bit about your background growing up, and you know, was there anything in that background that suggested you would follow the career path that you wound up uh, doing? I don't know if it's got a direct tie back to digital, but I can talk a little bit about, you know, early, early Jenna and kind of how my education kind of took shape. Um, I, I think it's indicative of the sales background possibly that I ended up in and, and my ability to have the confidence to kind of drive my career forward. You know, I grew up in Stovermont and Stovermont is an unbelievable town and it is just really rooted in outdoor activities, right? It's it's all about being on the mountain, being outside, playing sports, being an athlete. Um, and, and we moved there when I was 11 because my parents kind of saw this hidden athlete, you know, from within. And uh, they wanted to put me in an environment where I could really thrive. And so I came to Vermont and I tried every sport on the planet. And I kind of leaned into 
oh my God, ice hockey, field hockey, you know, but one thing that was always really a part of who I was, was this, this concept of, of pace, right? Being, being fast and being first. When I was probably, I want to say 14, uh, I was going to these elite Dartmouth hockey camps, right? Uh, I was going to, you know, Hanover, New Hampshire every summer. I was a goaltender and I would play in these crazy camps and all the girls that were amazing went to prep school. And I thought, you know what, if I want to be an athlete, I got to go to prep school. So I came home one summer and I said, mom, dad, I want to go to prep school. And they said, yeah, okay. How about this? You do some research. And this is like before the internet, right? This is like before, you know, all of the efficiencies that you get with, with utilizing computers to do research. You do some research, you, you, you pick a, you pick a school that you're interested in, you apply. And if you get in, we'll figure out if we can afford to send you there. I said, okay. So I called every school that I knew had great players. And I said, please send me all your pamphlets. So I get all these pamphlets in the mail and I'm, I'm looking at these marketing materials and I kind of like lean in, convince my parents, kind of take me to a few visits. And then I get on the phone, right? When I kind of narrow down my top three, I get on the phone, I start calling coaches and I'm like being my own recruiter, right? I'm saying like, hey, you got to come see me play. I'm really good. I'm going to be at this tournament. And I, I start like selling myself, you know, at age 14 to these like head coaches for these very sophisticated programs. And I get in, um, I get in, uh, I, I end up going to Northfield Mount Hermon, uh, but I always think back to that story and I think, man, you know, even at age 14, I was selling, you know, I was selling the dream, selling myself and, and really working to take some big risks to create some opportunity for myself. So I think, I think that was kind of the beginning. Um, from there, I ended up at Wesleyan University, uh, never would have happened if I would have remained a public school in Vermont, really got to explore my education and that really springboarded my athletic career as well. Uh, I ended up being a seven-time All-American there, a national champion in the 55-meter dash. And uh, I played field hockey. I, I got to do a lot kind of playing and, and thriving in a Division three environment. You know, my senior year, I discovered rugby. That became a huge part of who I was. So it was kind of fun, you know, after school, um, you know, getting through what I thought were my athletic days and finding another seven years of a new sport, you know, post-collegiate play and trying to simultaneously build a career through that process was just, it was complicated for sure, to say the least. Awesome story. And, you know, for the listeners, you can probably hear the uh, the energy and the passion. And Jenna and I have never spoken uh, before, so I'm seeing it now and hearing it, you know, first time, but it's just, um, it's you, you can totally feel it. So that's great. Jump into the, the rugby thing for a second. So I don't know anything about rugby and professional rugby, certainly not women's professional rugby. So is there, are there a lot of women in the States playing professionally? Yeah, there are now. Um, I would say, you know, 11, 12 years ago when I was really in the thick of it, it was definitely an emerging sport. It's now an Olympic sport. So when things end up in the Olympics, you know, they get major sponsorship, you know, you get you get the funds you need to really attract the talent. Um, you know, school programs get stronger, scholarships become available, and it just becomes, you know, more ubiquitous across the country. We were really paving the way for that. Um, to give you some perspective as a professional rugby player, you know, we were really only paid when we were on tour. So you're working to pay to fund your career, right? Um, because the amount of effort and energy that it takes to be a professional athlete, I mean, you're training, you're eating. I mean, I remember sitting at my desk, just like throwing down chicken cutlets all day to try to keep weight on because you're just, you're just training so intensely. It's the, the vitamins and the PT and the acupuncture and the, you know, the, the support that your body needs to do that. So I need all of that now and I don't play rugby. So that's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming full circle on all of it. Um, 
But, you know, I will say that back then, I know I feel so old saying that back then, you know, we were really paving the way for the sport, you know, not just for the sport, but also for our gender in the sport. And by the time I retired, which was roughly 2011, 2012, that is when uh, we had the first salaried female rugby athletes in the U.S. And that was a really awesome milestone. But yeah, there's a women's premier league in the U.S. I think there's like seven to nine you know, semi-professional teams that are operating throughout the country. Um, and those teams basically serve as selection pools for the U.S. team. And so every year they come together in a national tournament, the U.S. team um, coaches watch, and then they select their pool, they get invited to camp, and then, you know, it kind of works similar to the women's soccer team. So uh, yeah, it was wild. It's awesome. It feels like a lifetime ago, you know, I'm married, I've got kids. It's just so, it feels so, so far away from now, but I learned so much being a professional athlete that I've, that I've brought into my career and um huge part of who I am. Incredibly grateful to have had that Very experience. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about career, right? You know, in my background, you know, I kind of, I've been on the brand side for most of, of my career done, you know, consulting, but never worked for a provider or a partner or a vendor. I always have called that the dark side, right? And, you know, and, and vendors have said, geez, Mark, you know, you should come to the dark side. You'd be good at it. You'd be a good salesperson. And I've never ventured over. You started on the dark side. So now you needed a career after or a different career after rugby where you could actually make some dough and it wasn't physically draining. So run us through just, you know, kind of how you got that first gig on the dark side. Yeah, it's funny. I, so out of college, um, I moved to New York because, you know, that's what, that's what people do, right? Successful, successful people take on New York city. So, um, I wanted to tackle New York. So I moved to New York, uh, slept on a couch for a bunch of months trying to, you know, find my bearings, eating, you know, peanut butter and jelly and ramen. Um, and I was dialed into the rugby community. And the benefit of the rugby community is it's very, it's very wide. Um, and you do have lawyers and doctors and professionals that play. And so you kind of have this instant network to kind of find, find your path, right, in this new environment. So I ended up actually my first job in New York City was driving a box truck delivering magazines. There was an email that went out. Who wants to make a hundred bucks today? And I thought, all right, this is my chance. I'm going to double my, <laughs> going to double my, uh, my bank account right now. I'm going to go deliver some magazines. So I, uh, I, I met with the publisher of this magazine. She said, "So you know New York?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." She said, "You driven a box truck? Oh, all the time. So you know the streets. You're good to go." Yep, absolutely. Let's do this. So until about two in the morning, um, starting at like seven a.m. to two in the morning. I was driving this box truck and I, I rolled back into the office. She's still there. She said, you've never driven a box truck, huh? And I said, no. She's like, you're new to New York? I said, yeah. So we got to talking. And by the end of that chat, she had hired me um, to kind of be her right hand uh, at the at the organization, talk through my experience. You know, I just graduated and she gave me a shot. And I really ended up leaning into sales. That's really what happened. I was kind of, I was executive publisher. That was really about creating relationships with you know, our main advertisers and securing funding for each of the monthly, uh, you know, m- monthly launches. And that's really where I got my feet wet um, and just started making some significant dollars. It was really lucky. I just kind of fell into it. From there, I actually ended up taking a, another sales gig at the New York Press, which was a free weekly news rag, kind of competitive with the Village Voice. From there, um, I did that for about two years. And that, man, that is gritty. I mean, you got to go collect your own payments. You got to go to the bar that placed the ad, go in the depths, the dungeons down in the basement and like get your envelope full of cash and bring it back. To, I mean, it was, 
it was a great introduction to New York City. I could not have learned the city faster, um, but it was definitely knocking on doors, you know, just shamelessly putting yourself out there. It was it was a very humbling experience. Um, from there, I ended up working for Getty Images. I got called by a recruiter. I started licensing imagery across the globe, Tiger Woods for a century in every major airport. Um, I was serving uh, Young and Rubicam, PBDO, Deutsch, some of the biggest agencies on the planet. And it really gave me an insight into, whoa, there's a, there's a bigger world out there. This is something I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of this energy, this pace, this reach. Um, and what happened from there was I got picked up by an agency that I was servicing. And that agency, I came on to do biz dev for the agency, selling the development of websites. That was what they did. And they ended up buying a third of a startup called Pushcart. And Pushcart was ages before it should have been. It was a mobile app that would serve you deals based on your location. In order to redeem that deal, two things had to happen. You had to scan a QR code at the point of sale to prove that you're physically there. And when you scan that QR code, it would dynamically post an endorsement on your social media on on your behalf. It would say, I'm at Joe's Pub, just got a two for one, you can too, click here. And so as the consumer, you're getting the deal. Joe's Pub is getting the endorsement. Everybody wins until Facebook says, we want our messages to be authentic and they shut you down. That hurt. But that transition, that agency to running BD at the third of a startup, that got me juiced on the entrepreneur side, the startup side. I got to tap into the same sort of resilience and pace and just like wild faith and trust and, and the amount of work that went into building a business that really tied into, I think, the the similar resilience that I was gaining through that that rugby experience. You know, because of the fact that you've been on both sides of the space, you know, one of the things that I hear, you know, so often from vendors is, you know, they're they're bemoaning um, how difficult the sales cycle is, and and depending upon what they're selling, you know, the sales cycle could be very long, it could be a little bit shorter, but they all bemoan that. Having sat on both sides, what could you say to you know those you know providers and vendors about uh, what appears to be an elongated sales cycle as we progress with more options to choose from? It's a really good question. Um, it's the reason I took the job at Snipes. I took the job at Snipes because I thought it was going to be an opportunity to see how the other half lives, and it was. I think that from the from the tech sales side, we know very little about the process. We don't know how budgets are built. We don't know when they're built. We don't know how product is actually sold in. We don't know what stakeholder alignment means. We don't understand the political nuances of what buying tech and implementing tech really looks like. Um, and I think that there needs to be an effort to really learn more about that and find partnerships within your retail relationships that can pull back the covers and really show you how does this work? What's your buying process actually like? You know, on the retail tech side, when you're building innovative and emerging tech, you have got to believe with every ounce of you that the problem in the market that you're solving is the biggest problem in retail. You have to believe it, right? Because you have to sell it and you have to help your buyer believe that that is their biggest problem as well. Otherwise, you're never going to get prioritized. You start these conversations with this kind of inauthent inauthenticity, right? Because you're not really acknowledging the fact that this retailer has an agenda too. This retailer has a roadmap and priorities and their own unique challenges. And I think that the advice that I would give is spend more time in the beginning of the sales cycle talking about the retailer's agenda. Ask them questions about their business and identify very early on if they're actually a target. If I'm hell-bent on putting in a loyalty program right now, and that is my first priority, I'm not going to be ripping out my point-of-sale system right now. It's just not going to happen. So it's like you've got to spend a little time really qualifying the deal 
before you you get deep. That's the best advice that I can give. And in general, these relationships rely on kind of the the three-legged stool of of vision, reciprocity, and trust. And I I think that if you're not spending your time instilling trust in the beginning stages of the relationship through the sales cycle, then the relationship's kind of doomed. Yeah, it's been always surprising to me, you know, that, um, you know, I would sit in front of somebody coming in to pitch while I was on the brand side and, you know, they didn't really fully even understand the problem that they were trying to solve. They had an idea, but, you know, after, you know, spending time with, you know, different retailers, you know, they come to, to find, you know, maybe we didn't really understand it quite the way we, we should have. So, you know, I think your advice is, is good. You know, you've been a part of a number of brands, number of businesses that have been acquired. How does it feel when you're on the inside, you've worked you know, super hard to build a brand, um, even on the provider side, and then you're acquired, in some cases, the big, bad new owners come in and they want to change things. So how do you deal with that? So I'll give you some more context about where I was in the process of those acquisitions, because um, I think that'll tell you more about my perspective. Most of the roles that I played in those organizations were either on the sales side or the partnership side. And I'll lean into kind of the partner track. I think as we try to determine what a good partner looks like, it's really important to look at it through the lens of possible acquisition. So obviously you want to align yourselves technically with a a value proposition that helps enhance your own, right? The better together story so that your go-to-market is more effective. When they win, you win. When you win, they win. But I think at the end of the day, when you're looking at aligning with partners, it's also, hey, could, could my tech actually roll into theirs at some point? So my role at Clutch specifically was just that. It was building a partner network that would help identify uh, whether it was integrations, go-to-market strategies, co-selling, to help bring that business to market. Um, And same went for Radius 8, trying to find that alignment. I exited those businesses before they were acquired, but know that the work that I did set them up to be ready for acquisition. So I actually didn't experience the post-acquisition bliss slash nightmare um, that you speak of, but but I've acquired a lot of businesses. I've been on the buying side. And, and what I can tell you is, you know, at Snipes, we actually went through four or five acquisitions through my time there. And that is, that's intense. You know, finding a way to identify opportunity within the acquired business, find a successful way of merging the equity authority and value of those businesses while maintaining and, and instilling new culture in those team dynamics. It is hard. It is difficult on the buy side. I can, I imagine it's difficult on the sell side as well, having that uncertainty and that concern. And I handled kind of putting some of those, those concerns at bay. I kind of felt it from the acquired parties. I can tell you, I enjoyed being on the buy side. I'm not sure how uh, fun it would be being on the sell side. Well, I've been on both and uh, they're equally stressful, you know, <laughs> uh, for, for <laughs> sure. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com.
Let's talk a little bit about, you know, omni-channel, multi-channel, hybrid shopping. You know, people call it lots of different things. You know, you've been involved, um, you know, in a number of, of different uh, brands on both sides of the aisle. Things really accelerated seemingly during COVID. You know, this um, need to, you know, help the customer buy online, pick up at curbside. How, how are things progressing from your perspective in that area? It's funny, right? So many retailers clamor and claim that they're customer first, they're customer centric, right? And when the rubber meets the road and you hit a pandemic, all of a sudden, all of these customer requests get prioritized because it's a requirement to continue to drive business, right? So it's funny, we're, we're customer first, but we're really customer first when, you know, we, when we, when we need to be. And so I think you're right. I think that the value of Omnichannel was really accelerated through the pandemic. It was a use case that proved to be a resiliency or a backup plan, you know, for future issues like we had during COVID where, where stores were shut down or we couldn't handle store foot traffic, uh, but still wanted to serve the customer and give them access to our, our inventory. But I see in a lot of cases that very temporary band-aids were put in place to support those use cases. And I'm not quite sure or confident that these retailers have then gone back and reinvested in the infrastructure to manage those use cases. And I think if we get into a situation where the pendulum swings the other way again and consumers are, are less likely to come into our physical stores, those rails that have been put in place are going to break. So I, I highly recommend that retailers need to take a second look, rethink how they did that work and reinvest in those, those pipes that were put in place to implement those use cases. I, I do think that Omnichannel has now been reprioritized again. We've been talking about Omnichannel for a long time. Omnichannel is very hard. Um, implementing those buy online, pick up in store, reserve online, pick up in store, buy online, ship from store, ship to store. I mean, all those, all of those iterations are just very hard. I've lived it. I've implemented it. It's difficult, but it's definitely worth it. My concern, again, is that these retailers have not put in the time, energy, effort, resources, and dollars to do it in a fail-safe kind of way. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've said this before uh, and, and lived it. And when I got to Steve Madden, they were already shipping from store. And I used to say, you know, when I would you know speak at conferences and people would ask about Omnichannel and, you know, ship from store, I would say, you know, the retailers that can't yet ship from store really want to, but the ones that are doing it realize how hard it truly is. You know, that's still today, um, you know, I think uh, the same kind of a situation. Now, now you've got these other nuances, right? Now you've got the the Walmart Go Locals of the world. You know, you got the Amazon Todays of the world, and now from an SLA and SOP perspective, the pressure that's being put on the physical store to support those same day deliveries, next day deliveries, you know, utilizing store inventory as you know micro fulfillment hubs to meet these kind of new Amazon directed SLAs that the customers are expecting. I mean, it's just getting harder and harder, right? And so these this work that was done during the pandemic, these, these bridges are starting to crumble and retailers are scratching their heads and, and wondering why. Um, it's interesting. I think that in many ways, retailers have been cheating it for a long time. Very easy example, buy online, pick up in store. It's not buy online, pick up in store. If it's buy online, wait three days and then pick up in store, right? That's that's buy online, ship to store, right? That's You're not actually tapping into real-time inventory. You're not actually taking advantage of the real-time impulsivity that that consumer might have at their fingertips when they're looking to pick that item up today. And so retailers really have to lean back in and do the unsexy work of building up an infrastructure that can really support those consumers' expectations. And we just have to do it. It's hard. It's so hard, but we have to do it. 
Snipes footwear business. Um, I know a little bit about footwear, having spent seven years at, at Madden. Uh, that was, I guess, your first you know brand business going on to the non-dark side of things. How was that transition for you? When I was having coffee for the first time with my uh, my hiring manager, which is the COO, Bridget Cooperman. I hope it was decaf. Absolutely not decaf. And I'm yes, I'm two cups in right now. So <laughs> welcome. You know, I thought that we were having a sales call about Radius 8. I thought we were talking about localization technology. And halfway through this coffee, she gave me a soft offer for a VP of digital role. And I thought, what are you doing? It's like, I have no business running a retail practice. I don't know. I wouldn't even know where to begin. And her response to me was, you know what? We have enough legacy thinking within this organization to last us a lifetime. It's not what I'm looking for. Come figure this out. Come check this out. And it was one of the best career opportunities of my entire life. It allowed me to come into this kind of like, you know, historically kind of slow moving retail environment, the fresh set of eyes, a tech driven set of eyes that really let me rip the business apart in my own way. And luckily I had a, a leader that was willing to give me the autonomy to really figure it out and carve my own path. And it, it gave us something different and it gave us something new and I learned so much through the process that I really fell in love with it. You know, I, I walked in there, you'll appreciate this, Mark. I thought, my God, I'm going to get out of sales. I'm going to get out of sales. This is going to be so great. You know, I'm not going to have a number over my head. This is going to be a different vibe and a different pace. And when I came into this environment, I realized, oh God, I'm actually, I'm actually selling to six different buyers now, right? My peers and my leadership and I'm selling 28 different pieces of technology. It was much more complex than I thought it was going to be, but I really thrived in it and I enjoyed it. And we uh, we knocked the cover off the ball. You know, we grew 10x over four years and established ourselves as a, a mainstay in the sneaker and streetwear industry. And um, it was a blast. I loved it. Can you point to one or two things that you know, you, you just talked about the performance, one or two things that you think were really the foundational elements that you created that weren't there before you got there that helped you get that growth? My first order of business was to replatform from Magento One to Salesforce. And that was also one of the big catalysts for me to take the role. Uh, and it was because I'd been on the other side of the Salesforce relationship for so long, sitting on the partner advisory board, you know, building go-to-market strategies with Salesforce, really connecting on a product level. But again, didn't have that experience on the retail side to say, this is what it's like. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to have the full picture. This is going to be so cool. So that was the first piece, you know, really putting in a, I called it at the time, a big kid infrastructure, even though it was a very small digital practice when I came on board. And we did, we put in Salesforce, we put in MuleSoft, we put in like really sophisticated technology for a very small practice, knowing that, uh, you know, with Europe as our blueprint for our opportunity, because Europe is huge, right? Um, top three sneaker and streetwear retailer in Europe. I knew that the that the opportunity was there. And if we didn't have the right infrastructure in place, we weren't going to be able to scale. That was number one and a huge part of, of our success. I would say the other is um, the amount of energy and effort and resources that we put into the top of the funnel. So in the sneaker and streetwear retail space, you know, we deal with hype selling all the time. You've got low quantity, high demand, you know, round numbers, million customers that come for a thousand pairs of shoes. And it can put a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on your environment and figuring out how through, you know, from bot mitigation, bot mitigation tools, through digital queuing tools, 
through fraud tools, CDN, WAF, DDoS, et cetera, to make sure that you've got a secure and resilient environment to support those hype selling environments. If you can do that for your customer, they're going to continue to come back. These customers want to find a way to get the shoe. And if you're in an environment where bots are gobbling up the units or sites are crashing, or you know, you're going to lose that long-term relationship and not gain the opportunity to upsell, cross-sell them over time. And so we put a lot of time and energy into our bot mitigation strategies. And that that gave us a very great platform from which to build from and, and capture customer data from. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the Salesforce uh, transition, you know, and, you know, you talked so much, you're a marketer, but you're a business leader. There's so much tech you just threw out. Um, and, you know, that's one of the challenges, you know, for retailers is, you know, they want to be brands, they want to create product, they want to be, you know, retailers and sell, but there really is a tech requirement in these businesses. Absolutely. Just the fact that we were so interwoven from an omnichannel perspective too, not only help best serve our customers, right? Customers are coming to your site all the time. They're coming to explore new product. They're coming to explore your brand. They're coming to buy. They're coming to plan out a store visit, you know, and, and when they come to the site, you don't really know the intent of the consumer, right? And so you kind of have to figure out a way to create a digital environment to meet them where they are. And we did that very, very well. You know, we had inventory position for all 308 at the time, more stores now, but all 308 of our stores, um, we could surface real-time inventory at the, prox you know, based on the proximity of the consumer to those stores. We would, um, you know, enable those units to be secured for buy online, pickup and store. Uh, we, we had, we could serve our customers at the intersection of their expectations and, and our agenda. And that in turn met our vendors agendas, right? Which was driving more product through our physical stores, you know, supporting Nike's agenda on getting on the street um, and really serving the communities that, you know, live near and around our physical store locations. It, it allowed the connection to be really strong and for that digital environment to serve as a digital voice for those physical stores. After Snipes, Solo Brands, which is where you are today. And, and uh, yeah, I guess you, you, you haven't been there very long. Uh, so tell <laughs> us what uh, Solo Brands, uh, the brands that make up your company and kind of the thesis for the business. Yeah. So in, in 2021, Solo actually IPO'd. Um, Solo Stove uh, was founded by two brothers in a garage. They put in about $15,000 of investment um, and they they built the first smokeless fire pit on the market. An unbelievable brand that has grown tremendously over the past few years. Uh, in 2021, we did IPO and we went through a handful of acquisitions. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, we became a portfolio company. Um, I look at these brands and my perspective is that we've done a really excellent job acquiring brands around the fire. So brands like Chubby's um, and Swimwear Company, Terraflame, which is think indoor fire, kind of brought us inside. Um, we've got Isle, which is a blow, uh, sorry, an inflatable paddleboard company and Oru, which is think the origami of kayaks, right? So it kind of folds up. It's like 20 pounds. You can sling it over your shoulder, throw it in the back of the car, uh, much more portable ability to actually get on the river, get on the pond, the lake, et cetera. And um, it's a really cool product. We're actually out there in San Francisco and Oakland this week uh, in their offices, having an executive offsite and, you know, seeing the product, seeing the environment where these are actually uh, designed and conceptualized was really, really inspiring. So yeah, I mean, we've we've acquired a bunch of brands. Uh, they've grown tremendously uh, over the past years since acquisition. I think my perspective and my experience in the ITs and say I'm three weeks into everybody in the business, but it's it's about two months now. They're not going to let you do that. You know, I'm the new guy. I'm the new, you know, the it's new like person. Caveat. Yeah, before anything comes out of my mouth, I'm like, well, I've only been here three weeks, but here's what I'm seeing. 
Solo has an, uh, an uncanny ability to build and maintain profitable businesses. And so the acquisition strategy, obviously these, these brands are squarely outdoor brands, feeds right into our ethos of you know, Solo Stove, uh, but it's been very interesting to actually witness the the ability to acquire, grow, and and drive profitability through these acquired brands, and um, that's our game, and it's it's working, which is pretty cool. How are you guys um, structured in the sense? You know, I, I've been in a number of multi-brand businesses over the course of of my career. There's you know always this you know back and forth. Do we want to be decentralized? Do we want to be centralized? Um, how are you guys uh, structured from that perspective? Yeah, it's a very healthy hybrid at the moment. Um, so there are some disciplines within the organization that make a ton of sense to be centralized, right? Data governance, PMO, et cetera. Those disciplines are actually working really well in supporting all of the brands across the portfolio. But there's also a huge benefit to having the ethos of these unique brands continue to live on independently. And so they each have their own unique brand voice. You know, they have independent leaders that support those brands. So it's it's a nice hybrid. It, it's cool. You you still have business leaders that are very, very focused on the brand uh, and the growth of those brands, the voice of those brands and the go-to-markets for each individual brand. But you also have a, a team of individuals that look at the business very holistically and are dedicated to driving all brands forward. So the benefit of that configuration is that, you know, we have the ability to have the economies of scale that come with the combined power of the portfolio and the autonomy to help continue to drive brand voice across the businesses. You know, being a public company, your sales volume is out there. Is it uh, 500 million or so annually? Yeah, that's kind of where we're, um, I mean, that's what we've taken to market for sure. I mean, that's that's a nice round number that is in print everywhere you can read it. You know, having a large company, relatively large company, you know, oftentimes brings you the ability to test some new ideas, especially, you know, in, in the marketing area. Go down that path with me for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, three weeks in, but what I will say- Two months uh, now, they tell me. Oh, three, Two weeks, months. <laughs> three, weeks, three weeks forever. Um, what I will say in my very early assessments is that we have a CEO that is incredibly innovative. Um, he is willing to take risks. He is willing to try new things. He's willing to align with innovative technologies. And we really have the ability to manage that risk because we have a number of brands that reach different markets that you know have different volumes so we can test things out learn iterate and determine if it is a solution or technology that we want to deploy across our family of brands but yeah i mean we move incredibly fast uh we love being innovative we love aligning ourselves with new technology testing learning iterating moving on or moving forward depending on the results that we see from those tests so it's it is definitely a place for me i will say one of the challenges that you know I've seen in these multi-brand businesses is, you know, regardless of how big you are, how profitable you are, there are budgets, there are limited resources, everybody's limited to some degree. And if you've got four brands, eight brands, whatever it is, there are decisions to be made as to not only within each brand where you spend the next marketing dollar, but also across brands. So if I've got four brands, do I spend the next dollar of marketing in one brand versus the other? Do you know if one brand is a better acquisition vehicle for your, you know, uh, overall company and lever that to help grow and then you know convert that customer to a, another brand uh, within the portfolio. Is that how you kind of think about the business? Three weeks. 
today, my impression has been that while some of our functions and services are operating in a centralized fashion, the businesses are still being managed and run uh, in a decentralized fashion. And so these marketing budgets are allocated appropriately based on the size of the businesses as a percent of total. Um, and they are you know, managed in a centralized way, but um, distributed based on the health of the businesses. The benefit of working within profitable businesses is that you're really leaning in, right? It's, hey, we're, our ROAS is a four, a five, a six, a seven, et cetera. You know, we're, we're looking at doubling down, not pulling back. So that is a benefit, I think, of being profitable that allows us to not have to be as rigid on how we allocate those budgets, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, that's uh, that's perfect. Okay, let's move on. Um, we have a mutual friend, Doug Weish, which is you know it's always interesting, you know how you um, you know you and I started talking about doing the show. Then I reached out to Doug, and he's telling me about this new thing he's involved with, and I'm involved with uh, with it with uh, Jenna Posner, and I'm like, oh wow, I just engaged with her, and we're going to do our podcast, uh, my podcast with her. So talk about the Retail AI Council. Well, first of all, we have one mutual friend, but I just looked on LinkedIn and we actually have 198 <laughs> friends we share. Okay. But yeah, the uh, the AI Retail Council, it's very nascent. It's very new. I would say conceptual at the moment. Um, Andy Lodato and I were asked to chair and vice chair the, uh, the council. And I think the spirit behind it is AI is a thing. It's not going anywhere. And as retailers, we're all trying to get a handle on it. And so I've had a lot of success at Solo, a lot of success uh, at Snipes on implementing AI and understanding the power and value of what it can bring from an efficiency standpoint, creative standpoint. And I think Doug is trying to get together some industry leaders that have perspectives, but also have connections and influence to drive some really good cohesive mind share together to attack this head on. I, I love his concept of the council, right? It, the idea is get some re retailers, you know, kind of on this board to help drive, drive an agenda around what kind of information we need to start compiling to really understand what is the roadmap, what's the path for the implementation of AI. I think we've done an incredible job as retailers figuring out how to use AI to augment our current processes, right? We have to write copy. How do we use AI to write copy? We got to create content. How do we create new assets through the lens of AI and push the boundaries on the settings in which we use to bring our, uh, our assets to market? But we're all looking at it through a very myopic lens and we need to come together and we need to use a resource like Doug to get talent in front of us to help us learn more, learn faster. Um, I'm actually speaking in, in Denver uh, in about a, two weeks uh, about the topic. And, you know, we've got executives up there on stage from Kendra Scott and Sephora and, you know, we're all coming together. And in these prep sessions, it's just so clear that like, we all want more. We want more. And so this is like a, a council that is going to be a call to tech to say, tech, we need more, right? We need more than just the ability to change sentiment and content that we're creating. We, we need a bigger picture visionary to come in and work with us to figure out what is this path forward with AI. And so I think Doug is trying to build that. Um, and, and subsequently, Andy and I are trying to, to build that alongside him. Uh, it, it's necessary. We need it. It sounds really interesting. Doug, you know, explained it to me as well. So, uh, you know, if there's something I can do to participate and, and be helpful, for sure, uh, you know, reach out. So I, I did tell Doug I was interested. So that's great. Okay, this has been great. We're down to uh, end of the show. I do this two minute drill, seven questions, one word answers. Are you ready? One word. 
Yeah, well, you know, nobody ever sticks to one word, but we're going to try. I'll do my best. Okay, here we go. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Viore. Favorite app on your phone? Nike's sneakers app. A holdover from your time at uh, Snipes, I guess. Never right? forget. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Patagonia. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? Reading emails. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll make sure to text you then. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Feeding America. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Ugh, squelch the political divide in our country right now. Okay, good one. And lastly, other than family, what's your most prized possession? I want to explain this one, but it's um, home. I'm a huge design nerd. Um, so love the fact that I can uh, have my my side hustle be continuing to evolve where it's kind of a cheat code for your original comment, but it's building a home, you know, that my family can really thrive in and and that can be beautiful and um, inviting and just a, a, a beautiful nest for my fam to live and, and grow and thrive. Yeah, that's uh, really nice. Well, look, um, really nice to uh, to chat. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Good insights for the listeners. And uh, I will look forward to uh, talking to you again and uh, participating on the Retail AI Council. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Jenna Posner for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Jenna offered up her story about selling herself at the age of 14 to coaches at prep schools, and we know how that turned out. Regardless of what we do, we're always selling something, our product, our skill, our ability to help a company or others. Do not be afraid to get out there and advocate for yourself. Number two, many brands are focused on performance marketing, that effort to spend and drive measurable results, but do not neglect top of funnel advertising dollars. Those are much harder to evaluate, but you need a full funnel strategy to drive your business. Continue to invest in your brand's awareness, which will help to improve the overall advertising spend of your business. And number three, we spoke about the sales cycle for new tech and how long it can be. Whether you're on the buying side or the selling side, being sure that you fully understand the other side's decision points and how they evaluate a product is crucial. Years ago, there was an apparel retailer, Sims Clothing which crafted the tagline, an educated consumer is our best customer. Don't be afraid to educate the other side about how you operate your business. You are likely to get a better outcome for both sides. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details.